once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host, our guest author, well-known here on EWTN, a popular preacher, Father Wade Manisa, CPM. Catholic Essentials, a guide to understanding key church teachings, proudly published by EWTN Publishing, and naturally available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EW10RC.com for all things Catholic. Father Wade, it's always great to see you. Thank and, you, Doug. Uh, our audience loves you every time you come and, you, and you're preaching and filling in, or the spots you've done, which are, are the sum and substance of where this book mm -hmm. came from, uh, are always very, very popular. Let me ask you one question. I always think of you as, you know, the fathers of mercy. So what is a CPM? I guess M is, is that mercy, but what's the rest of it? Well, that's a great question. CPM stands for Congregation of Priests of Mercy okay. in the English, but also works in the Latin as well. The Congregatio Presbyterorum uh, uh, Misericordia. So CPM, both in the English and the Spanish. Right. Yeah, I came Latin. out of media. That was cost per minute when you were talking about yeah. production <laughs> yeah. or something like that. So let's talk about the Catholic essentials, the key to understanding key church teachings. What are the essentials? It seems to some degree that the ground's always shifting over what the essentials are. Well, uh, I wanted to put a book together that would answer the why in a, in a one-two punch kind of a way, if you will, as to what the church teaches on these particular points of doctrine. There's 81 chapters. No one chapter is over four and a half pages. Um, a lot of people, Catholic and non, for example, our Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, our Muslim brothers and sisters, uh, Catholics themselves, uh, everybody seems to know what the church teaches, for example, on abortion. It's an intrinsic moral evil. It's against human life. Uh, but very few can articulate the why. So I wanted to put this book together uh, in, in, a, in a short, curt, uh, type of a way, a, a good solid synthesis of the teaching that would present the why, again, in a one-two punch kind of a way. Uh, and the 81 chapters fall under five parent categories of morals, dogma, ecclesiology, sacraments, and liturgy. Well, it's interesting, too, because this was based on a series of interstitials or yeah. short subjects you did over the years for EWTN, right. plus some additional material, right? That's right. So I've done three interstitial series for EWTN over the years. Uh, the Crux of the Matter, some 65 episodes, I believe. Uh, the Wonders of His Mercy, uh, 13 episodes. And then In Defense of the Eucharist, um, unbeknownst at the time, just a year and a half ago, that our bishops would be calling for the three-year Eucharistic revival. So I've, right. I'm very edified by the fact that we were able to do those just before the bishops announced this revival on the Eucharist. So it's from these three interstitial series right. that the book was put together. Well, let me ask you with that, especially jumping to the Eucharist thing, because, uh, you know, the concern is that people don't understand the true teachings of the church relating to the real presence, etc. But I would have to say, coming out of the 60s and the 70s, those things were not emphasized. The meal was emphasized yeah. over the sacrifice. So in a lot of ways, I don't know why so many people are so surprised that people are confused. Yeah, you know, I like to say that Vatican II was not the cause of all this confusion in these 55 plus years since the council ran from 1962 to 1965, but it is the occasion by which the confusion was fostered in the church. Um, you know, uh, progressive liberal forces within the church herself um, took the Vatican II ball and ran in the wrong direction with it, and we've lost a lot of the essentials of the teachings of the faith in these five parent categories on these different topics of doctrine. Well, well I thought it was great the way, because we hear about mercy, 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 and we have to have that, and it's yeah. really important for us to understand how much God loves us and how willing He is uh, to forgive us, but right. you tie together that mercy requires acknowledging sin. 
Uh, you know, because say to receive the yeah. great gift of God's mercy requires acknowledging the reality of sin. After all, God's mercy exists precisely because of the reality of sin. The original sin we inherit because of the fall of our first parents and the actual or personal sin we commit, whether mortal or venial. In other words, if there was no such thing as sin, there, there would no, be no need for mercy. Exactly. Yeah. But there seems to be, there's some people who seem to separate the idea uh, that, well, you can't really sin and God's all merciful. Yeah, well, <laughs> more reason for putting a chapter on this very topic right. in here. Look, we have mercy as God's uh, primary attribute, many of the church fathers say, uh, precisely because of the reality of sin. If there is no such thing as sin, then there's no such thing as a need for mercy. But we know that mercy is his greatest attribute, mm -hmm. uh, along with his love for the individual, calling the person to the fullness of truth. And so uh, we have to acknowledge the reality of sin if, if we're going to talk about God's mercy. I like mm -hmm. to sum it up this way, and a portion of this, what I'm about to say, is from Divus and Misericordia, mm -hmm. Rich in Mercy, the encyclical on mercy from now St. John Paul II. Uh, mercy is who God is. Mm -hmm. It's love's second name, mercy is. God is more interested in our future than in our past. Mm -hmm. He's more interested in the kind of person we can yet become than in the kind of person we used to be. While indeed taking our sins seriously, no doubt, whether mortal or venial, God never ever takes those sins as the last word. Why? Because He knows He calls us constantly to Himself he knows He's made us in His image and likeness, and He knows that He's our God who's bigger than any sin we might ever commit, even the most hideous or wicked mortal sin. Right. So His mercy is calling us to repentance, uh, priorly acknowledgement of the sin, then to repentance mm -hmm. and to have a true contrite heart. You know, uh, the three requirements for confession is, uh, is contrition, confession and satisfaction, carrying out the penance that the priest gives you. This shows that in this tribunal of mercy that we call the sacrament of confession. In mercy calls us to be other-centered. You say mercy often said to be God's greatest attribute, always calls us to be other-centered as opposed to being self-centered. Don't we live in a very self-centered culture? We do. We live in a, in a very self-centered culture that uh, promotes what is instantly gratifying uh, from the, the latest uh, music download mm. uh, to the fast food industry to pornography being a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and so we've gotten away from the fact that we are called to be other-centered precisely because as human persons we are social by nature. You know, in the book of Genesis we're told it is not good that man be alone. Mm. So he made him a complementary, suitable helpmate, mm -hmm. all right? Then in the Gospels, when the apostles and disciples ask Jesus, Master, teach us how to pray, mm -hmm. he gives them the beautiful paternoster, the mm -hmm. beautiful Our Father prayer, and he gives it in the first person plural. Mm -hmm. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Mm -hmm. So I like to say that those are the, the, the Old Testament and New Testament proofs from Genesis and the Gospels with mm -hmm. the Lord's Prayer that we are called to be social by nature. And, and this uh, can lead us to be other-centered, rooted in love. You say, founded on compassion, mercy differs from compassion or the feeling of sympathy and putting the feeling into practice with a readiness to assist. There's therefore the ready willingness to help anyone in need, especially in need of pardon or reconciliation. 
Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and we see this in what our Lord called to St. Faustina three different times in her diary, right. which she records, the tribunal of mercy and mm -hmm. his description of the sacrament of confession or the sacrament of reconciliation. Now, you, you, you quote a couple of saints here, St. Catherine Labore, some others, St. Teresa of Calcutta. Uh, and I thought this one was interesting. St. Ambrose, great doctor of the church, I, I really like this one. No one heals himself by wounding another. Yeah. Yeah, you know, think of think of the the tragedy of of bullying uh, in in elementary schools, for example. You know, I, I heard one psychologist in an interview say, you know, it used to be before the age of social media, if someone was bullied at school, it happened for those five and a half to six and a half hours that they were at school. Well, now it's 24/7 because oh. the, the 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 elementary school or the high schooler might come home and be on any of these platforms, right. you know, Instagram or, or, or Snapchat or any of those, and the, the bullying continues. And then we wonder why such phenomenon as increased cutting, especially amongst young girls, girls. the yeah. increased drug use, the increase uh, of uh, opioid uh, addiction, um, and, and so forth, you know, a, a, a lot amongst our young people. It's, it's a tragedy. Right. And so uh, I, I want to stress in my talk on mercy in the book, and there's several right. chapters on right. mercy, the need to be other-centered. Right. Importance of rightly formed conscience, because we talked mm. about that. We live in a day and an age when people often and rightly so want to make moral decisions based on a personal conscience. And then you go on to say, how does a person rightly form his conscience? Because people throw that word around without knowing what they're talking about. Yeah. Well, Pope St. Paul VI said it all, in my opinion, when he said, let them follow their conscience provided they have a rightly informed conscience. Because if they don't have a rightly informed conscience, then they have an erroneous conscience, which has the same Latin root as the word error. They have a conscience that is in error. Huh? Uh, so how do we inform our conscience so that it's rightly formed? Well, as baptized Christians, we look to divine revelation. Uh, we look to the three-legged stool of sacred scripture, tradition and the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, and it's the magisterium that draws from sacred scripture and tradition, the oral and the written handed down, that draws all and proposes to all uh, in the church what is divinely revealed to be believed in so as to put ourselves on the road to salvation so that we can work out our salvation as St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, in his letter to the, to the church members at Philippi, he says, look, work out your salvation. It is God's will that you be saved. It is not God's will that you be reprobated. A nice way of saying damned, huh? It is God's will that you be saved. Uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we know that that's a filial fear, not a servile fear. A servile fear is a, is a fear that's afraid of a punishment, like an underling uh, under a superior. They're afraid of, of a punishment coming. But a filial fear from the Latin filius, which means son or colloquially child or son or daughter, uh, is the love that is, isn't fearful of a punishment. It's the love that simply does not want to disappoint. You don't want to disappoint. Yeah, precisely because right. you know the parent loves you. Right. Well, that's the filial fear we are to have uh, in the love of God and in our fear of God. And remember, too, that, that all that this three-legged stool of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium propose for our belief as having been divinely revealed so that we can uh, sent to the truths that have been revealed to us, um, is safeguarded by what's called the sacred deposit of faith. Mm -hmm. Think of the sacred deposit of faith as just that, like, like a safe deposit box in a bank. 
-hmm. where all the jewels, all the all the, the golden kernels, the golden nuggets of the truths of our faith are from scripture, tradition, the magisterium are, are revealed to mm -hmm. us and safeguarded by the sacred deposit of faith. So I can know literally, not metaphorically, mm -hmm. I can know literally what to believe as a Catholic Christian who's right. baptized and confirmed and who has received his first Holy Communion and receives right. Eucharist Which is regularly. a fabulous gift for people. And that's yeah. what people are looking for. They're looking for the truth. They want someone to say, yeah. to stand firm and say, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this what I'm supposed to believe? But yeah. so many times they get, well, you know, sort of, yeah, it would be good if you did, but we understand if you're having problems. You talk about mortal sin versus venial sin and the idea of gravity, which you talk about from the catechism. Mortal sin is a grave violation of the law of God that destroys the divine life in the soul of the sinner, and it uh, destroys the sanctifying grace. You go on to say, for a mortal sin to be, have three conditions, it must be met. Mortal sin is a sin whose object is grave matter, committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Now, a lot of people would say, well, you know, uh, what do you mean? Uh, you know, if I really knew it was really bad, I wouldn't do it, would I? Well, remember, we are called to be good students of the faith, precisely because of our baptism, precisely because of our confirmation, precisely because of our regular reception of the, the Most Holy Eucharist. These are the three sacraments of initiation, right? Uh, seven sacraments total, three categories. The three sacraments of initiation, the two sacraments of union and mission, which is matrimony and holy orders, and the two sacraments of healing, uh, confession and the anointing of the sick mm -hmm. for the body-soul composite that makes up the human person. So, as good students of the faith, especially with the three sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, we need to know what the church teaches mm -hmm. in regards to what constitutes grave matter. Uh, so there is well, some responsibility on our part. Absolutely. Not to just say, well, I didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Visible ignorance. Yeah, exactly. This is why uh, uh, an annual spiritual retreat is important. This is why regular spiritual reading is important as part of your, 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 your repertoire in the spiritual life. This is why regular confession is important. This is why regular reception of the Eucharist is important. Uh, Eucharistic adoration. You know, we profess, Doug, as you well know, some 40-plus truths mm -hmm. in the Nicene Creed every Sunday at Mass and every Holy Day of Obligation that falls on a weekday mm -hmm. when we recite the Creed as well or chant the Creed. Uh, what a beautiful reality that is. Do I really hold and believe these 40 plus truths in these articles of the faith that constitute the Nicene Creed from the, from the fourth century, the beginning of the fourth century? And all that the church proposes for my belief, again, through the three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, the magisterium, all the elements are there for me to know precisely what the church teaches. And there's a chapter in the book on faith and reason. Mm -hmm. The church understands that maybe your intellect hasn't arrived yet at a full comprehension or understanding of the doctrine in question. For example, the contraceptive use among married couples, mm -hmm. okay? It's morally illicit. Why does the church teach that? You, you read the book, you understand now the why the church teaches that, not only about temporary contraception, but permanent sterilization as well, I, I mentioned in the book. Even if you're not there intellectually, right. by remaining a good student of the faith, you still want to give religious assent to what's been revealed because you know that He is a God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Those are words from the act of faith, and I have a series of prayers in the back of the book. Right, you do. Right. And one of them is the act of faith. I believe these in all the truths, O God, which Holy Mother Church has revealed, because you, O God, 
have revealed unto her a God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. And that has to be taken into account. Well, I think it's also interesting with that, too, because uh, even the scientific method would say from the 60s on, what Paul VI said would happen has yeah, happened. That's right. Has, that's has right. introducing broad amount of contraception made marriage better, women's lives better? The answer is yeah. no, no on every one of no. these. So let's start arguing yeah. about who made the right decision on a particular panel. Right. When we right. can see, obviously, what the truth is now. Yeah. So let me point this out, too, because people say, well, it's hard to commit a mortal sin. A lot of people are scrupulous, as you might say in the book. Uh, you, but you make the point that venial sin weakens charity, and this is from the Catechism. It manifests a disordered affection for created good, impedes the soul's progress in the exercise of virtues and the practice of the moral good. Now, remember, too, Sir Avila said, you got to watch out for those venial sins because they weaken you. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly you saying it. So everyday faults and weaknesses that may not even be venial can predispose us to venial sin. What is a venial sin? Well, it's, it's wherein one of those three elements that constitute a mortal sin is missing. So we've already said that a mortal sin is grave matter, mm-hmm. uh, done with full knowledge that it's grave matter. You have intellectual awareness that it's grave matter, and you do it with full consent of your will anyway. The church has always taught that if one of those three is missing, or if two of the three are missing, you have a venial sin. Mm -hmm. But if all three are present, you have a mortal sin. So just as everyday faults and weaknesses that may not even be venial can predispose us to venial sin, unchecked venial sin can predispose us to mortal sin. What, What is not uh, necessarily a vice and done repeatedly, habitually, even right. though it's grave matter, uh, can soon become very vicious, right. very viceful in the person's life and, and be objectively speaking a mortal sin and quite, quite likely uh, subjectively as well. I say quite likely because when things can become so vicious, then the church teaches that you've got to take into, uh, 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 you've got to take into reason things like um, uh, the force of habit, psychological disturbances, right. and so forth, and how much control does the person have over this vice. But that doesn't negate the fact that the person still has to try to sincerely overcome it. Right. So what's objectively a mortal sin, even but I'm though, addicted to it. You right. know, I mean, I really can't. I, so you know, I subjectively, try, but... it may be venial, but that doesn't excuse the person who has the vice from sincerely trying to still overcome it, even if it means seeking uh, uh, professional, secular, temporal help in addition to the spiritual helps of the church. Right. On giving scandal to others, this is uh, on page 65. I thought this was interesting. Church teaching defines scandals as an attitude of behavior which leads another to do evil. And, you know, this is an area where, at least in kind of the abortion thing with some politicians out there, we won't go through their names, who uh, portray themselves as upstanding Catholics, you know, and, and but yet are incredibly supportive, especially clearly today, of what amounts to being virtually bordering on an infanticide. But and it, people say, well, you can't judge them. You know what's in that person's heart. You know, et cetera, like that. But it does give scandal. It does. What give happened scandal. to that idea that that's a problem? Even if you what you even if inside your conscience you're okay. You're doing something that's misleading people. Yeah, and we don't stop to think about that because we're not other-centered enough, which gets back to that which we talked about a few moments ago. Um, Your scandal is just that. It's giving scandal to others in regards to a truth of the faith that you claim to not only profess, but you claim to profess devoutly. And uh, it's it's a scandal on on several fronts, uh, from the beginning that it goes against canon law and what canon law teaches on the subject 
to what the morals of the church teaches in the, in the universal catechism to the act of, of for example, with, with sustaining and supporting abortion, uh, what it does to human life mm -hmm. and, and how it denigrates against the, the innate, innate dignity of the human person made in God's image and likeness. And so again, this is settled doctrine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like to say that we shouldn't deny Holy Communion regardless of where the person is at, but we have every right to defer it. Mm -hmm. And there have been cases in my priesthood, and I'm going on 22 years of being a priest, where I've explained to the individual, look, I'm not denying you Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. Quite the opposite. I very much want to give you Holy Communion. However, because of your obstinacy on this particular issue, I do have to defer it. Okay, so the ball is in your court to come back to receiving Holy Eucharist with good intention and goodwill and not causing the scandal well, aren't you protecting somebody who's who's unworthily receiving which calls damnation or whatever right. down on themselves we, per saint paul our goal especially right. as priests is to lead others to receive what are properly speaking holy communions right. and not sacrilegious communions right exactly you also talk about god's mercy and the end times are you thinking that we're in the end times no not at all no, I, I know not the day nor the hour our, our lord himself says that he does not know in the gospel to the end of the book i thought the, maybe you had something in there the father <laughs> will inform even the son right so we do not know uh, the day nor the hour however we should live eternity-minded. You know, that's the main thesis of my 2017 book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. Mm -hmm. And this is the forgotten doctrine of the church, uh, Doug, since mm -hmm. the close of the Second Vatican Council. Again, not, not to blame the council. Vatican II, those 16 documents, solid as a rock. But, but I, I blame the progressive forces from within the church uh, that took the Vatican II ball and ran the wrong direction. So post-Vatican II, we tended to focus more on, on salvation, which is a good, but we did it at the expense of, of focusing as well on the reality that damnation is possible. And so we've forgotten the doctrine of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, which is tied to the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, because one's particular judgment when they die will be ratified at the general judgment when Christ comes again. So my goal here with, with these particular chapters on the particular judgment, uh, the, the general judgment, uh, the end times, the antichrist, etc., mm -hmm. is to inspire the reader, my reader, to be eternity-minded, mm -hmm. to live in such a way that we are eternity-minded. We right? have lost that, okay. very much so. And also from a Catholic perspective, because a lot of times there's some other stuff out there that's really not a Catholic perspective on, right. on end right. times and yeah. things like that. Um, in, in a section on the presence of Christ and the real presence in the Eucharist, you go on to point out, in other words, whereas the other six sacraments affect what they signify, the Eucharist is what it signifies. Christ himself really, truly, substantially present, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. As I can hear Mother Angelica saying that over and over again, yeah. trying to make that point. Because sometimes we get, and as you point out, you know, when two or three are gathered in my name, and, well, God is really present, so is it really, if God is present in you, so never, you know, why are you kneeling in front of the Eucharist when you're not kneeling in front of somebody who has God within them already? Right, right. This gets back to the reality of the seven sacraments. I, I said it earlier, seven sacraments, three categories. The three sacraments of initiation, the two sacraments of union and mission, and the two sacraments of healing. Well, the Eucharist is one of the three sacraments of initiation, which means we're, we're fully, fully initiated into the church. You can't be any more Catholic, maybe in practice you can, but as far as um, the reality of your soul, you can't be any more Catholic than once you have these three sacraments. Mm -hmm. And sadly enough, we live in a day and age right now 
now where a lot of Catholics don't have confirmation. Okay, so are they Catholic? Yes, they're baptized, they've received their First Holy Communion, but they're technically, technically not fully initiated really? into the church okay. because they haven't received confirmation yet. And I have a few theories on that, on mm -hmm. different things I've read, namely the sexual revolution, because it was in the late 60s when a lot of parents began to not require their, their children to finish their catechesis between eighth grade and sophomore year in high school, wherein in this country, mm. many received the sacrament of confirmation at that time. Mm. Well, then those children get married, they have children, indeed, like their parents did with them, those children of theirs, which are now the grandchildren of the right. first generation, received baptism, received First Holy Communion and First Confession, but the second generation of parents did not force them to get confirmation and by force, I mean in a good way, you want your child to be fully initiated. So, but coming back to the Eucharist, where we're, we're the other six sacraments effect, that's with an E, not an A, right. uh, effect, not effect, where the other six sacraments effect the grace they signify. There is a proper grace effected in the person's soul by each one of the seven sacraments. Where the other six sacraments effect the grace they signify, the Eucharist not only effects the grace it signifies, the Eucharist is what it signifies. It is the most body, it is the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I posit, this is why we call it the most blessed sacrament. Right. You know, we everything about that title, right? Uh, the most blessed sacrament, that very phrase somehow implies that it's more blessed above the other six. Right. And I posit this is why. Now, each sacrament has its own claim to fame, we could say colloquially speaking, as being um, uh, the most blessed sacrament. For example, baptism is known as the gateway sacrament. Why? Because it's normally speaking, uh, ordinarily speaking, the first sacrament to be received before the other six can be received. But still, the Eucharist is what it signifies. Right, and just before we go, we've got about a minute or so. Uh, you talk about the idea of the Blessed Sacrament. You also talk about reserving the Blessed Sacrament and Eucharistic adoration in here and the importance of that. And obviously, Mother was uh, totally on board sure. with this. This whole place is centered around that and the Eucharistic adoration. It's a great quote here that uh, uh, attributed to St. Teresa of Calcutta included. It basically, she had a banner or a, a title in her chat. The Eucharist is the continuing presence of our Lord's sacred incarnation among us. That's right. That's exactly right. His precious body, his precious blood, his soul, his divinity, the God-man Jesus Christ, one person, a divine person with two natures, human and divine, fully present uh, in the most blessed sacrament. Just before we go, you just did a, a, a mini-series for us, didn't you? I did. Right. Uh, it's titled, uh, Work Out Your Salvation, The Theology of Faithfulness to Daily Duty, Becoming Holy Right Where You Are, whether single, married, a consecrated religious, doctor, farmer, lawyer, uh, retired grandparent, working grandparent, right. university student, it doesn't matter. You, your holiness begins right Right where you are. It was shot up at the the shrine. Right? It was, and we, we filmed it in the in the uh, priest retreat house chapel right. there. Absolutely. So yeah. we'll look forward to that. Always great. great to see you, Father Wade. Thank you, Doug. Always great, Father Wade Manesis. You know who he is. Catholic Essentials: A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings. Do we need it now? Proudly published by EWTN. Available through our religious catalog. I'm Doug Keck. Check us out next time right here on EWTN's Bookmark. Thanks.